Support for this show comes from Sticker Robot, makers of custom-printed, outdoor-caliber, full-color silkscreen vinyl stickers. Learn more at StickerRobot.com. That's StickerRobot with one R. Welcome to the first episode of All Your Favorite Music is Probably, where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like buried treasure. I'm your host, Mark Montgomery French, music culture writer, film composer, and durian enthusiast. Today's theme is All Your Favorite Music is Probably Songs You Didn't Know Were Covers, and my guest host today is drummer, percussionist, and composer Sage Baggett. Say hi, Sage. Hi, Sage. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. And actually, it's very cool to be in a room with someone else without a mask. That's true. We are recording We've... this. Uh, it is the end of May 2021. I feel like all of 2020 went somewhere else. Yeah, hopefully never to be heard from again. <laughs> totally. Uh, when I think about cover songs, I think about when I was mm, eight and when the biggest bands in the world was Earth, Wind, and Fire. And yes. they had done a song called Got to Get You Into My Life, which I assume, like all songs, were theirs because we didn't really have the Beatles at my house. My parents were way into R&B. The Beatles were not R&B. Therefore, there were no Beatles songs in my house. But I thought everybody had the Beatles in their house. My mother was a fan of Elnor Rigby. So we had the Elnor Rigby 7-inch okay. with a yellow submarine on the back. And oh. she felt that was all we ever needed. She could listen to Eleanor Rigby and, and Little Mark could listen to Yellow Submarine. Pretty much. It's it was, really a kid's song. <laughs> it, at heart. it really is. Uh, Eleanor Rigby, not quite so much a kid's song. <laughs> no. So it wasn't until later I realized that was the Beatles song, found listening to Revolver and going, oh, 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 it's like this now. So that's how I realized you can take other people's songs and pull them like taffy and make different sorts of things out of it. And there was so I think there's a whole lot of songs that we all take for granted that are, well, that's the person's song. It turns out, well, not initially. Yep. And let's play some for people. I think uh, also when I was younger, when I first heard Soft Cell's Tainted Love, I'm like, this song's amazing. Yeah, and, and I loved what, it too. And what's a Soft Cell? Like, I didn't get the name of it either. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I know what it is with an S, but, you know, yeah. with a C, I'm not sure. Um, I also was happy uh, with Tainted Love. It was an excuse to say taint. Yes, which at that age, you know, you would want to say as much as possible. You really, you get into conversations a Even lot. if you didn't know really what it was. <laughs> Oh, the tale of ended. But I had no idea, no, at all that it was a song recorded by someone else named Gloria Jones. And because it wasn't even a hit, it, apparently we came out in England and it was, it was popular if you knew Northern Soul, which yeah. I certainly did not know in America in the 80s. So for everybody out there, I'm going to play the original version of Tainted Love by the wonderful Gloria Jones. And it sounds like this. Seems to go nowhere And I was not right For I tossed 
that was the original version of Tainted Love by Gloria Jones from 1964. Again, not a hit until Soft Cell redid it in 1981 and became a hit in like 17 countries around the world. And that's how most of us heard it. So it's interesting to me how I feel like in the 80s, especially with a lot of British music, there was very much uh, a love for music from 20 years previous, from a lot of stuff from the 60s. Do you uh, yeah, agree? there were the ska bands like The Beat or The English Beat here in America mm-hmm. that were covering Motown songs. Tears yeah. of a Clown was a huge hit. The whole new them. romantic stuff to me was kind of a, you know, a callback to that time, maybe. I don't know. They called themselves Soul Boys, yeah. you know, and they had clubs where they all would do soul music and you had culture club coming that same environment it's the same club scene that spandau ballet came out of the same club scene mm. that even charday came out of and all point from the same american motown stacks yeah you know to the point where um even somebody like paul weller who after you know doing uh the mod thing in the jam decided to become kind of like curtis mayfield for the for style council oh yeah you know and it was all straight up straight r&b straight r&b straight r&b nice uh which was cool so speaking of R&B, Mark. Yes, Sage. Um, quick, name me a cover song from the soundtrack of The Bodyguard. Hmm. The only one that comes to mind, well, of course, is I Will Always Love You. True. But there's another one. Tell me more, Sage. <laughs> so there's a, a, a little song called What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Yes, I've heard of that. Yes. And what I didn't realize... Um, because don't tell anyone I have, haven't ever, ever actually listened to the bodyguard soundtrack. What? This podcast is over. (laughs) Um, what I didn't realize was that song was covered on the bodyguard soundtrack by someone named Curtis Stigers. But that song, you know, has been around for a long time. And, uh, well, tell us about that song. The big version was by Elvis Costello. He made it a hit. However, and it was produced by Nick Lowe, and Nick Lowe wrote it for his previous group called Brinsley Schwartz. And they were a UK pub band back when pub was big in the early 70s, Dr. Feelgood being another big band at that time. And uh, Brinsley Schwartz did not last, and the song was never a hit. And he probably thought no one would hear it again until four years later when Elvis said, I'd like to record that. That's a good song. And that song has sort of always been been around, except that no one's really ever heard the original version. Well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to play the original version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding by Brinsley Schwartz. And here it goes. Oh, what's so funny about peace, love, and 
troubled time My spirit gets so downhearted Sometimes, sometimes So where are the strong? Who are the trusting? That was the original version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding by Brinsley Swartz back from 1974. One of the interesting things that I immediately noticed was that the vocals were, Niccolo's vocals were much, I, f- much, I feel they were much more buried in the mix. And then when you compare it to uh, Elvis Costello's version, you not only have his vocals much more up front, but you have, of course, his kind of unique voice, his unique stylings. Um, and the arrangement and the music is, is fairly similar, but I feel like the drums on Elvis's version are a little more dynamic, nothing to take away from the drummer and Brinsley Swartz, but Elvis Costello's drummer was always really interesting to me and did a lot of cool stuff, you know, when he, when he could have just been doing four on the floor, you know? What's interesting is that, uh, Nick Lowe, who wrote it and was in Brinsley Swartz, was the producer of this one. And the Brinsley Swartz version was actually Dave Edmonds, who was Nick Lowe's partner in Rockpile. Ah, so, that's right. So I wonder if he's if it's, he he got a second chance to do it again, really. And speaking of Rockpile, somewhere in my basement, I have a promo copy. I think it was from Capitol Records because at that time we would get all these promo copies from Capitol Records of the Rockpile album. <laughs> no way! Does that come with like the other EP of covers or not? I. Don't think so. I think it's just a normal one, but it has the little punched out hole that all oh, the promo right. copies would right. have. So you couldn't, air quotes, resell them, even though you could. All right. So check this out. You know how like Parliament in the 70s would, ha- the Parliament album and the Funkadelic album and the Parliament album were all basically the same people playing on all yeah. those albums. So in 78, I think the same albums 
that Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds put out almost at the same time were also all rock pile albums, but they couldn't call them rock pile albums because rock pile was, wasn't signed yet. And therefore oh. wanted to get, it was weird. So basically three rock pile albums came out, but only one under their name oh, okay. on Columbia, but it's all the same thing. It, it was just different lead singers. It's, it's, it's funny. So I want to talk about yes. Memphis. Cool. And uh, High Records, which famous for Hi. Al Hi, Records. How are you? Um, famous for Al Green. Uh -huh. was also the home of Ann Peebles. Oh, and nice. Ann Peebles recorded I Can't Stand the Rain, which was a minor hit that eventually became Missy Elliott's The Rain. I mean, a lot of it. And it's not just I'm going to sample part of a song. It's essentially a cover. And I love Missy Elliott's stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to interject that I love this song. There's, there's <laughs> something there's something about it. It's just kind of hypnotic. Yeah. Um, and so researching a little bit, I thought it was interesting because, um, first of all, the, the story that they give is that uh, Ann Peebles and her partner, musical partner, and then later husband, were about to go out to a club one night, and it was raining, and she, she said it was quote, it was pouring outside and I just said, I can't stand this rain. And her uh, later husband was always on the lookout for interesting song titles or phrases. And he's like, that sounds like a song. And apparently they just never made it to the place that they were going to go out to because they just decided to write the song that night, which they did. Um, and also the husband said later that it was kind of a reaction against uh, a lot of R&B songs at that time because a lot of them were celebrating rain. Oh, wow. And this one was like, I hate the rain, you know? <laughs> so it was a reaction. So basically, she could have told him, honey, we're out of season salt, and the song would have been a whole <laughs> a whole different composition. Yeah. 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 That, that's amazing. Well, we're going to hear that. So get ready for uh, Ann Peebles' I Can't Stand the Rain. I can't stand the rain against my window Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, when the rain Do you remember How sweet it used to be
And that was I Can't Stand the Rain by Ann Peebles, made famous later by Missy Elliott. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, okay, it's the early 70s. This is a great song on high records. And high records just somehow could not make a hit out of too many people that were not Al Green. Because yeah. that song's jamming was not a hit. Al Green recorded Take Me to the River, ah. but it wasn't a single. If you look on the original vinyl of Al Green's Greatest Hits, the one where he's shirtless and trying to, you know, I'm sexy on, on the cover. Yeah. Take Me to the River is not on that album because Take Me to the River was not a single. So was my question is, was Take Me to the River ever a hit until Talking Heads covered it? No, it was a minor hit. Uh, he wrote it and gave it to a label mate named, I think, Syl Johnson. And Syl Johnson had a minor, minor hit oh. with it. And then Brian Ferry covered it, and then oh. Foghat covered it. But the Foghat. Right. And then the biggest hit was Talking Heads, the least funky of anybody I just yeah. mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's so synonymous with Al Green, it's the title of his autobiography. It completely flipped. It oh, was nice. a deep cut, and now it's like the song they'll mention if he passes. So it doesn't, but the the sh- the thing we take away from this is high records didn't quite do their job. But I will say one last thing about the original song. You know, there's that kind of weird noise which you at the beginning, which you might think is like pizzicato strings or something. It's a tink tink, isn't it? Tink tink. <laughs> yes. Otherwise known as an electronic timbale, which I didn't even know that existed. And I have to do some more research, I have and to admit. And you're a master percussionist. I, I know, I, I know. But apparently they had this electronic timbale sitting around the studio and they were messing around with it. And they were like, hey, this is a good sound. So we'll use this to the intro to the song. And actually, it's not just an in the intro. It keeps going, but it's at a much lower level. So there you go. Electronic timbale. You never knew what that was and you never cared. And now you can go back to not caring. I want one now. So do I, but that's because of my ridiculous compulsion to buy every unique instrument out. This is true. You actually own the jawbone of an ass as an instrument. I do. It's very biblical. Speaking of the South, I want to talk to you about a band called The Click, C-L-I-Q-U-E. In the late 60s- Wait, wasn't that a hip-hop group? You know what? (sighs) Yeah. Okay, names are interesting because, like I mentioned before, the beat had to call himself the English beat because there was an American beat Ah. and he took precedence. And so, uh, but yeah, I guess if you were a band and you died early and were not big out of your region, like the Click, I guess you can just be a hip hop group and take it. Or or E40 loves this band, which could happen. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to E40. I digress. Superman by R.E.M. was a, a big hit for them in 1986, and yep. I thought it was an original. And it turns out it was actually the cover of a late 60s group called The Click. And Spelled C-L-I-Q-U-E. Yes. Aren't they a rap group? Wait, this whole conversation is no. cyclical. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and I think we should play it now. Don't you, Sage? I do. Let's play it.
And that was Superman by Houston's own The Click from 1969. It was a hit for R.E.M. in 86, 87. So it took a moment to shine. So it looks like The Click only had that one album and were popular for a very short time. I think just regionally. I, I always find it interesting when something like that comes out and disappears and then some artists it resurfaces and becomes huge. And and I often think, how do they know about it? Did they just find this album in a bin somewhere? Did, you know, did they hear someone else cover it? Was it really popular locally? I don't know. Speaking of interesting covers, here's the story. There was supposed to be a Nicolas Cage Superman film. I think, um, Kevin Smith may have I remember that. Right. It got to the point where on YouTube you can see Nicolas Cage in a very odd Superman costume. He has long black hair. The movie cost a lot of money. They canceled it because they couldn't get it to work. This is right before the Brendan Routh, Brian Singer version of Superman. Okay. And it was being put up by Warner Brothers, and they wanted a Warner artist to sing that song for the movie. So they paid Roger from Zap to make a recording of it for a movie that never existed, <laughs> which would have, I get how you burn money. <laughs> we haven't shot anything. Sorry, I'm just I'm just imagining, first of all, imagining Nicolas Cage as Superman. That's, it's a hoot. That's interesting. And then having Roger from Zap do his whole vocoder thing. So can we please listen to some of yeah, that? Yeah, let's hear a bit <laughs> of Roger's version of the Clicks version of of Superman. Yeah, was that funky? That's the funkiest version you ever heard of Superman vocoder for days and the bass is still ringing around in my head. What do you think, Sage? I'm kind of speechless. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I never knew that existed. Um, and yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that again. But speaking of songs that kill... Yes. Um. You have another song. I know that was a stupid pun, but you, you got to have some kind of segue. So what's what's the next song we're going to... Killing Me Softly, which you may uh, have heard because it's world famous. Uh, I would say uh, the Fugees being the last group that took that song internationally. And we all know that being a Roberta Flack original, but yet it wasn't. So this was a song that's a cover of a cover of a cover. Yes. Chinese nesting, not Chinese, Russian nesting dolls of... <laughs> <laughs> I know my country's <laughs> Russian nesting dolls of covers. Nice. So yeah, like a lot of people, I thought that this song was written by or written for Roberta Flack. But as it turns out, it was uh, written for uh, a woman who at the time was a young singer-songwriter, and her name is Lori Lieberman. Who? Exactly. Um you know, someone who had some mild success, uh, but was never as well known as maybe she should have been. Yeah. But in looking into it, it's it's got an interesting history because 
apparently Lieberman went to a performance, uh, a live concert by Don McLean, he of American, American Pie. Pie fame, which by the way, was my mom's favorite song of all time. Like she would just, she loved to listen to that song. And I know a lot of people kind of hate that song because it just, you know, goes on forever and it's, it's just been played to death, but my was, mom loved it. Was so. she a fan of the movie? Uh, no, I don't think she ever saw okay. any of the movies. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> but, uh, Moving on. Um, so she apparently loved uh, the way Don McLean performed this song called Empty Chairs, which I don't even know that song. Um, and she asked uh, some songwriting partners, Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox, to write the song based on her experience. So basically, you know, she was saying the song was killing me softly. Now, Later on, there was, you know, I would encourage anyone to read the Wikipedia article about the song because there was a lot of drama that happened. Let's just say there was a lot of drama that happened between her and the two co-writers. And mm. they later wanted to disavow that Don McLean was actually the inspiration. And they asked him to take that off of his site. He claimed, you know, that he was the inspiration for the song. And he said... No, I'm sorry, but here's an actual bunch of quotes from you and other people in the newspapers at the time saying, I was the inspiration for the song. That's so, so, that's so no, I'm not going to take that off my site. Because Good for you, Don McClain. I was the inspiration for that song. And he, is, he has also said that he was really humbled by two great artists, you know, saying that, you know, this is a great song and that it inspired them. So, you know. Uh, good for you, Don McLean. So wait, so we just got to, from Don McLean to the Fugees in one song. That I didn't expect. Yeah, it, that's the way it works in, in music. You know, you have these weird degrees of separation. All right. Well, let's then hear the original song that inspired lots of drama, Killing Me Softly by Lori Lieberman. Just 
So that was Laurie Lieberman doing the original version of Killing Me Softly. And it's interesting because I've, I have never heard that, you know, and there's a couple of things that stand out. You know, she was definitely of the time. She kind of had that Joan Baez warble. Yes. Um, whether you, you know, love it or hate it. Yeah. Um, and I have to admit, I've never really listened to the lyrics that closely. And it's pretty, pretty deep. She's... You know, it, it really was inspired by a performance uh, of Don McLean, as we found out, and she, it really affected her. Like the lyrics go, he sang as if he knew me in all my dark despair, and then he looked right through me as if I wasn't there, but he was there, this stranger singing clear and strong, strumming my pain with his fingers, et cetera, et cetera. So she, it, it's almost like she felt like everybody knew her thoughts in this crowd and it was like he was reading her letters out loud. So that's, that's kind of cool. And what's also kind of cool about the song is how many, how the covers took it to a different level. Like Roberta Flax has bass and drums on it. It's much more of a, a slow jam kind of song. And she found inspiration in those words. And then with the Fugees where we've got, you know, Bonita Applebaum slash where reconnection memory band. Sitar. I forgot that they did that one too. Yeah, right. So now mm. it's taken another leap and it's now basically a hip hop classic. Yeah. Same lyrics, same intensity of the words. And I mean, that's the mark of a great song, really. T- t- yeah. to, be, to be pushed and pulled so much, like every other version, even almost sounds like a demo before you get to the Fuji's version. Yeah. Slightly. Not to mention two times, two times. <laughs> that That's awesome. All right, on to the next song. And the next song is Hanging on the Telephone by Blondie, which 
I, of course, thought every song Blondie did was original, which, of course, is not true. Uh, one of the other ones is The Tide is High, by the way, which is by the Paragons. Ah, That's an I didn't action. know that. <laughs> Bonus song. But uh, it, it, not to digress too much, but it kind of makes sense when I think about how it sounds. It sounds kind of like a cover song to me. It, uh, I think like one it could have been. It, written earlier. Yeah, I mean, it, it has. it's a reggae song, and it sounds like a reggae song that only a rich white rock band could record. Everything's <laughs> 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 perfect and polished. Uh, but Hanging on the Telephone sounds like an American pop punk kind of song. That's because it was written by a San Francisco band called The Nerves. Yeah. And That's here for the Bay Area. That, yay. Uh, and so uh, Jack Lee from The Nerves wrote that song in 73 or 4, and somehow a copy got to Blondie, and they went, let's record this. So now we're going to hear Hanging on the Telephone by The Nerves. I'm in the phone with this one was Hanging on the Telephone by The Nerves. And The Nerves uh, started in San Francisco, got big in Los Angeles, and had a couple of members you may have heard, one being Peter Case, who not only has a pretty good solo career, but also was in The Plimsolls, as mm. in A Million Miles Away. And uh, also Paul Collins, who formed Paul Collins Beat. In fact, that's the reason why English Beat are co- called English Beat in America, because he got the name The Beat first. So Interesting. That's how that happened. But yeah, it's... um. Uh, Blondie clearly had taste in covers. Yeah, and listening to that, it was interesting to me because I would not, like if I was just casually listening to that song, I would have no idea that that was the same as the Blondie song. You can kind of hear it when the, you know, when the chorus comes in, but otherwise to me, it sounds completely (laughs) different. Somebody got a big time producer. Uh, Yeah. Now, I want to talk about the Four Seasons. 
Oh, Vivaldi, one of my favorite composers. <laughs> totally. He totally stole that from. <laughs> um, there was a guy in the Four Seasons named, uh, well, who wrote for the, for the Four Seasons named Bob Crew. Okay. And Bob Crew also wrote Lady Marmalade. Uh, which was recorded by LaBelle. That's the canonical version that we know. Yes. Although we also might know the one from Moulin Rouge, which had pink and... Um, Let's see. I have it written here. Christina Aguilera. <laughs> yes. Maya, Pink, and Lil' Kim. And produced, I believe, by Missy Elliott, because Missy Elliott's all uh -huh. over this podcast. Okay. Uh, nice. But it turns out that uh, LaBelle's version of Lydia Marmalade was not the original version. It actually was recorded earlier in the year by a group called The 11th Hour. Shout out to all the 11th Hour fans listening to this show. Uh, <laughs> Wherever you are. Yes. It was not a hit. And when you hear it, you can determine for yourself why it wasn't. Okay. Let's listen.
and that was the original Lady Marmalade by the band The Eleventh Hour, which were basically a backing group for uh, one of the writers uh, named uh, Kenny Nolan. Kenny Nolan wrote that song with Bob Crew, who are a lot for... um, the Four Seasons. They also wrote My Eyes Adored You, the Frankie Valley song. Uh-huh. Frankie Valley versus Four Seasons is like Parliament versus Funkadelic, depending how you look at it. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same of, thing. Same thing. I have to tell you, I really loved that version by the Eleventh Hour. I have right? never heard of it. Although the the vocal stylings get a little shrill, a little shrill. But it's still pretty funky. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely um, succeeded on the We're Making a Dance song. I mean, I, mean, I can see why Alan Toussaint was like, okay, there's something here. This this could make a really good song. If only we had the combined firepower of Nona Hendrix, Sarah Dash, and Patti LaBelle, I think we can lift this song up. And it's hard to compete with those vocalists yeah. on anything. Um, uh, another... Uh, odd note about this: uh, the two songwriters were also in a group called Disco Tex and the Sex Olets. Wow! Uh, if you've ever heard the song "Invasion Hit Parade" by Elvis Costello, he mm-hmm. references Disco Tex and the Sex Olets. And I thought oh. he made that up until I realized <laughs> they had a top ten hit in America called "Get Dancing," which, if you look on YouTube, was immortalized by Bart Simpson on The Simpsons at one point. Oh wow! And so those two guys wrote that in the same year they wrote Lady Marmalade. They were definitely on th- a vamp. Do you think they just had a notebook with silly band names and they were like, hey, let's use this one? <laughs> what hasn't been used? No one's got this. <laughs> yeah. What was turned down to land on? Yeah, Disco exactly. Tex. Like, what did they go through and decide was too ridiculous? The Eagles. Nah, that's crazy. <laughs> no one will pick that. So, like you, I also, in the 80s, saw Pretty in Pink. Yes. And there's a great scene where John Cryer plays Ducky and he's dancing to Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness and he's just throwing down, sliding across the screen and it's a majestic thing and I thought, well... It's majestic, but it's also a little cringe-inducing. I'm just going to say... From, from you know, the perspective of now. But anyway, Well, yeah. considering how the film ended, spoiler alert... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It maybe wasn't the best thing. Uh... But it turns out that Try a Little Tenderness was not an Otis Redding original, although he sang it like he wrote it. Wow. Turns out it goes way back to when 78s were the way you put out records, and it was by the by Ray Noble and his orchestra. And they did a quite different version, a lot less sensual version of <laughs> Try a Little Tenderness. Well, maybe it was sensual for that time. Maybe. Maybe this is a time where people, I think, were still singing into megaphones. Yes. And now you will hear the sensual stylings of Ray Noble and his orchestra on Try a Little Tenderness.
And when she's weary, try a little tenderness. You know she's waiting, just anticipating things she may never possess. While she's without them, try a little tenderness. It's not just sentimental. She has her grief and her care. And a word that's soft and gentle makes it easier to Women don't forget it, love is their whole happiness. It's all so easy, try a little tenderness. was tired dancing hard to the sounds of Ray Noble and his orchestra <laughs> doing a funk workout of so, Try a Little Tenderness. Was it like five minutes before the vocals even come in? <laughs> you know, when you're doing a foxtrot in the 30s, you just want to yeah. jump, you want to hold back. Uh, who yeah. sang lead? Because that guy was killing it. Um, Val something. I, I Val Godson, yeah. Val, Val was definitely, you know, you don't want to rush out the Val. Um, now, True story, when Otis Redding wanted to record this, the publishers who owned the song really wanted him not to because they thought that by making it more, oh, I don't know, Negro, uh, it would lessen the value of their intellectual property. Oh, man. (laughs) So basically a song that is now known and loved the world over by millions of people would have been utterly forgotten if that person or people had had their way. I'm sure when uh, Jay-Z and Kanye wanted to sample it for their song, Otis, they were more than happy to let them do it for a fee. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as we wind down this wonderful hour, I want to talk about rock and roll. Rock and roll. I know. What's that? Uh, specifically, the song "I Love Rock and Roll" by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And Joan Jett is a stylist, much like Sinatra of rock and roll, in which she picks other <laughs> songs. Uh, a lot of times, she picks songs that you do know. She, she did a great cover of uh, Tommy James and the Shondells' "Crimson and Clover." Yes, and I love that song. In fact, I think I didn't know the original song first. I knew mm-hmm. her version, and then I. I kind of became obsessed with 50s and 60s rock and roll when I was a kid. I used to listen to KYA 
at night on my little transistor radio. Remember KYA? I don't remember, was it one of those realistic ones of like red yeah. or blue? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So KYA, I think it was AM radio. AM radio, right? Yeah, AM. But they played nothing but oldies, and I was just like, I was like a 40-year-old guy in a 10-year-old's <laughs> body who was just obsessed with doo-wop and rock and roll from the 50s. And So anyway, uh, yeah, I loved Crimson and Clover. Those have been great people like, you know, trying to do some disco dancing and you're like, who wants to hear some Dion and the Belmonts? <laughs> um, um, so, so Joan Jett was, she loved glam. She loved glam mm-hmm. rock, it, even though America never really did, except yeah. afterwards. I mean, except for maybe... Um, quiet Riot doing Slade's Come On, Fill the Noise. America did not mm. really partake of glam rock in large amounts. But she heard this song by a band called Arrows in England. And I th- think they had a, a TV show, variety show in the summer. And she heard the song and she went, I can do that. And she did. And she actually had, I think, two guys from uh, the Sex Pistols play behind her. Oh, and really? it wasn't great. So then she did it again. With her new producer slash co-writer, uh, secret uh, Blackheart, King Laguna, and he made it sing. So uh, what I want to play for you is the song that inspired her biggest hit ever. Mm-hmm. This is Arrows doing the original I Love Rock and Roll. Shame. I knew she must have been about 17 mm. The beat was going strong Playing my favorite song And I could tell it wouldn't be long Till she was with me, yeah me And I could tell it wouldn't be long Till she was with me, yeah me
that was Arrow singing I Love Rock and Roll, which, as we know more, as Joan Jett's number one song for something crazy like uh, months in America. And it's still a good song. And I see why she wanted to do it. It is a good song. I, I liked it. Um, but it's, it was kind of missing that arena rock <laughs> brilliance of Joan Jett's version. You know what I mean? It's like, like a large shed, maybe? Yeah. Not really quite well, an arena. And, and as, as you pointed out to me, it's also missing that doubled uh, guitar an octave higher going yeah. that... Da, 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 yeah, da, yeah, you know? and it's the little things. Um, her uh, Kane Laguna comes from Bubblegum Music, and he, when he did this version, just knows how to add hand claps and yeah. and things to to make it jump out of the speakers. Uh, but uh, I love the Arrow's original song. I love the fact it just decides to go into seven four for no reason towards yeah, the end, and, and they kept that, <laughs> which is which is cool. Um, here's a little fun fact that I just found out. Yes, so Alan Merrill, who was the one who wrote the song of the band Arrows, he said he wrote the song as a knee-jerk response to the Rolling Stones' It's Only Rock and Roll, But I Like It. So there you go. Peace out to the family of Alan Merrill, who passed last year due to COVID, oh, actually. So, uh, But we will respect him for the great song he gave us. And I think we have reached the end of the show, Sage. No. Uh, yes. Well, thank you for, for coming on and being on the first episode. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And so to everybody listening, that is our show. Please come back next week and we'll unveil another fun theme. I also want to shout out to Spiky Blunt for the original music. If you want to follow me on the Instagrams and the Twitters, I am known as Mr. French. That's M-R-F-R, the numeral three, N-C-H. That's Mr. French with the E of the three. Thanks and I'll see you next time.